I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome everybody. Welcome to another Chinchilla Squeaks. It has been a slight break again. I feel like I say this a lot, but I was traveling and yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I should have recorded as I went, but I don't. I never do. I always say I'm going to. I never do. It doesn't matter. Lots to cover today, including some interviews from an event I was at in Vilnius in Lithuania called Build Stuff. Quite a fun event. But let's go back a few steps first and start with a few links that I want to cover. Then um, a report back from Build Stuff with some interviews there. And then a report back from some other events I was at before. So I'm kind of going backwards in time, forwards in time, backwards in time, forwards in time. Keep up with that. Why don't you? So let's get started with some links first. I won't take up too much of your time with these. Um, there's been a lot going on, though, in tech. I'm not really going to focus too much on some of them, apart from maybe the whole Twitter debacle, or to be more precise, where a lot of people on Twitter have gone to, which is Mastodon. I did actually sign up to Mastodon some time ago, Christian Schiller. I actually got my preferred username there, which is very nice. But I kind of played around with it, didn't really know what to do, and left again. And now I went back, uh, like a lot of other people. I am getting used to it. To be honest with you, I was sort of slowing down on my Twitter use generally anyway. Um, and actually, one of the things I've liked about switching to Mastodon is it feels a bit like Twitter did six or seven years ago, where... I have found that more recently with Twitter, you don't really get much interaction on it anymore. You say things and unless you're a big name or a commercial name, you get very little response. Whereas in the past, you used to get a lot more interaction and response with people. And actually, with very little time spent on Mastodon and with a very small profile at the moment, I've been getting that kind of interaction and feedback and interactivity that I so missed from Twitter the past few years. And um, that's actually been quite pleasant. I've really enjoyed that. I still haven't really dug deep into the kind of Fediverse, I think it's called, of all the different um, Mastodon instances yet, just mostly messing around on the main one for now. But I will dig into those a bit later. It kind of makes me think a little bit of a sort of open distributed discord i suppose in that way and maybe having had some experience with discord in the intervening period has meant that it seems a bit more familiar to me i think like signal when a lot of people jumped off of whatsapp to signal and then kind of came back to whatsapp we'll see what uh what remains of this jump whether people will stay there or not i think uh, they've got a lot of users but still a small percentage of twitter users and adding to that, it's always useful to uh, to point out that Twitter itself is also not particularly um, big in itself. It's also not a very large uh, social network even in itself. So we'll see what happens. Um, and I guess if if a mass exodus from Twitter to Mastodon ruins Mastodon, 
I wonder this. I wonder if this is why a lot of people didn't really stick around with Signal. I mean, Signal is not particularly complicated, but maybe it was too complicated for people who were used to WhatsApp. I'm not sure. But we'll see. I'm kind of enjoying experience at the moment. I tried a few clients on different operating systems and quite enjoying it. And yeah, if you want to join me, then Christian Schiller on Mastodon. And um, we'll, we'll talk there and we'll talk more about it over the coming months, I am sure. Next, something from late September. So going back a little bit, the new wave of JavaScript frameworks written by Rem on Front End Mastery. I found this very interesting because it gave me a good, very brief potted history into JavaScript frameworks that were more familiar to me in the past when there were less of them, things like jQuery, where we are now and sort of what's happened in the middle and why. Quite often jumping around between JavaScript frameworks I'm often left confused as to why people felt they needed them. Uh, what was wrong with React? Why do we now have others? What was wrong with what came before React, et cetera, et cetera. And this article actually goes into quite nice detail about why these alternatives came about and why they might be needed as opposed to sticking what was there before and uh, help me understand the shortfalls of some of those, uh, and not just the kind of cult of the new that sometimes is the, the stereotype and the joke with JavaScript. And then it sort of explains how a lot of them work and how a lot of them have changed to also meet those shortfalls over the recent years, for example, React, and talks about a lot of the new ones and what they've learned from each other. Um, so I guess some of the first ones we have, sorry, some of the new ones we have here are... Things like uh, Vue, um, which is probably not that new either. Um, Svelte, which is something I really need to look into. And how these actually sort of reduce the amount of JavaScript on the front end. They're kind of like what Node did to JavaScript. They do to some of these pre-existing frameworks. They follow similar patterns. And in a similar vein, I have been messing around, but I'm actually quite liking it. I did a Twitch live stream on Astro a little while ago. And I am moving my website to it slowly and quite liking a lot of it so far. Not all of it. There's a few things I'm finding that should be simple in the traditional static site generator or not. But I'm kind of enjoying grappling with it and it makes enough sense to me. I just came off working on a very uh, large project to use React a lot for the past couple of years. So I think doing that, it meant that I started to understand the concept of React and MDX, which is like markdown with React and that kind of thing, and sort of understanding where all of these fit in. Uh, so I'm switching to Astro slowly, um, finding their Discord server sometimes helpful, sometimes not so helpful, um, but getting there. And uh, I actually need to update my old website. I, a few things broke on it and I have been dedicating my uh, part-time developer time to my new website instead of fixing the old one, of course. But I do need to actually update some things there too. Um, some Ruby broke. <laughs> uh, but that watch for that. Uh, I will probably do a big old summary of what I end up doing when I'm finished. But uh, if you want to understand how we got to projects like Astro and all the other things that work around it, then have a look at this. Great article. I found it very helpful. One more sort of tech-related, there's one more traditional old-school tech-related. I love a bit of computing history from 512 pixels, 512 pixels, Apple's mouse, a history. Uh, I have been using Macs long enough to remember most of these, and some I liked more than others. Some were more classics than others. Some were more infamous than others, like the round hockey puck 
mouse. I actually quite like that. I'm one of those rare people that liked it. The magic mouse with the ball that always got grubby. And then, strangely, how long the current Magic Mouse has actually been around for. It's actually been around for about 10 years. So it's sort of long overdue an update, maybe. Then some of the really old ones, like the ADB mice with one button. And Max had one button for quite some time. She mentions the the first mouse to have two buttons was the Mighty Mouse in 2022. This was still a ball, I think. Or was it? No, no, no. I think it was also optical. I honestly can't remember. Um, and always the constant tale of tails, so literally the cable on mice always getting broken and worn out. I think that's now been replaced by, um, <laughs> by, uh, phone charging cables is the new sort of, um, the new cable to damage like it used to be cables on mice. And it also includes the trackpad, which is easy to forget about. It's also been around for some time, and it's kind of an external mouse. But there's some great pictures, too. Uh, it's cool to see all beige things. Half of them probably still work, which is kind of amazing in itself. And finally, before I get into my interviews, this was an interview on GQ with Alan Moore, the infamous comic author, comic legend. Actually, this article made me go and buy a couple of his comics I hadn't read yet. I really liked... Uh, Providence, so I bought Necronomicon, these kind of loved th- Lovecraft-themed comics, but deal with Lovecraft in some different ways. He's always been renowned as being a bit of a crazy recluse, and this article does not change that at all. He says he doesn't lead to, need to leave uh, Northampton. It's got everything he needs. He's never watched any of his films or TV series based on his stuff. He says, why would I? He doesn't like doing interviews. He doesn't like going to places. He's a... I think he described himself as a wizard, doesn't he, as well? Yeah, there's this, all these sort of, um, what should we say, um, stereotypes and rumors about him are mostly true, but I still kind of like him for that. The fact that he's been so popular for so long and so revolutionary, but also so kind of unique and antisocial and anti the establishment he's in, which I... I like. <laughs> so if you want to learn more about Alan Moore, forgive the pun, go and take a look. Okay, now I'm going to cover my interviews from Build Stuff, and then I'll be back to talking to you about events that came before that. In each interview, I will introduce a speaker, so I'll just do that in each of those, and back shortly. Now I'm joined by Lars Clint. Now Lars and I have actually known each other for some time back in the Melbourne Connection, but... I've not actually seen him, like many people, not seen him in Melbourne for some time, but seen him in a few Eastern European cities over the past few years. Lars, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, I think the last time we saw each other was in Ukraine of all places, like four years ago or something. Yeah. I think I forced you into a vegetarian restaurant. You may have. I don't mind. I live with a (laughs) vegan. It's all good. (laughs) Um. So what, what are you talking about? I think your talk is tomorrow. What's your topic at Build Stuff? So my topic is Azure Serverless, which is a bit of a, you know, let's come up with some buzzwords to grab people. There's a bit of that in it, I must admit. But it's uh, it's basically chapter two of the book I'm writing that I've converted into a talk. And because we had build stuff, I wanted to build something, right? And I'm building a serverless image resizing tool like it's 1997. It's fantastic. So it's the, the, the aim of the talk is to show people that serverless – 
services can work together quite seamlessly uh, in the cloud and what each of them do, not all of them, but what some of them do and what their advantages are. So that's the plan. And what uh, you actually are kind of someone who comes up with tutorials and helping people learn as a job. What What is your your job? I have no idea. Um, no, my, my job is my title is developer advocate um, for Pluralsight, which is a training company. And, but my job is to do cool stuff with tech, essentially. So I have to come up with things, ideas, uh, record videos, or uh, do podcasts. We just launched a new podcast um, through Pluralsight as well. Uh, but anything that can promote the brand of Pluralsight is my job. So and whatever that might be. Um, so it's a bit of a sort of wishy-washy come up with things, but I like it because it's very creative. And I don't have anyone that says you must do this task now. It's sort of like, oh, what do I think would work best for learners to let them um, learn the best way they can? And that's quite refreshing. But you do tend to focus on Microsoft-esque technologies, I think. Is there a reason for that? Is it just your speciality or it's what you like? It's probably what I like. I've I've drunk so much Microsoft Kool Aid. You wouldn't believe it, right? It's it's. I've always lived in the Microsoft universe, and I've used C Sharp for fifteen years now, um, ever since like version two, and I've used Azure since it was new. Um, so I've always been in that space. Uh, there is part of me that sort of goes, I should probably learn the other things as well, you know, just to have some balance. But there's a lot of Microsoft, and I, and I enjoy it. I think. It, when I first started, it was like, oh, Microsoft's cool. And I, it's funny thing is out of uni, I had two job offers. One was developing .NET applications and the other was Linux admin. And I chose the, the, the Microsoft for no apparent reason. I can't remember, but I might as well have gone down the Linux thing, Linux path. But um, now Microsoft loves Linux as well. So I'm sort of come full circle. <laughs> I mean, Microsoft has a pretty large portfolio these days. But do you ever, do you ever struggle to come up with what you're going to cover next? Probably every minute. Um, it's one of those things as I've sort of got more experience. I'm perfectly happy knowing what I don't know because uh, you can't learn it all. There's no way. So I focus on a few things. Um, I'm a software developer by, by nature, I almost say, by, by trade. So I tend to focus on the things that are in that realm within cloud computing. That's sort of my bag. But I am interested in all technologies. Like I've, I have a YouTube channel that's not related to Microsoft at all, where I do, I basically record everything on my farm that I automate. So it's like water tank monitors and smart locks and temperature sensors and a bit of Lego in, in there as well. So, yeah. Is it running on Azure, your farm? Some of it. <laughs> I did create, I did create something called llamacam.com.au, right? Um, which is not running at the minute because I was putting, we have llamas on our farm. And I had cameras pointing at the llamas and I put them on the internet and that was done through Azure Media Services. So sort of it, some of it was, but now there's no llamas in the paddocks I'm monitoring at the moment. <laughs> so I'm not running it right now, but yeah, I could enable it pretty easily. Hmm. When I first started doing writing, it was actually as a, a like a fanzine writer. And one of the first bands we used to interview a lot was a British band called the Llama Farmers. That's <laughs> what I'm thinking of right now. <laughs> Long gone. But anyway, we were talking before we hit record. You used to work for an Australian company called a cloud guru doing similar things than what you do for Pluralsight now. And we were talking about how it's one of the biggest acquisitions in Australian tech history. Um, is that, was that a sign of the company or do you think it was a sign of? the Australian market maturing or 
both, neither? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, there's many thoughts on this. So A-Cloud Guru um, was a company that was created to focus on cloud training um, because there was a niche there that wasn't fulfilled and the founders saw like, this is going to explode and it did. Um, but there was also this con- misconception that we can't have startups in Australia yeah. and they won't be that successful unless you're like Jira or Atlassian. Um, and I just don't think that's true. And it's funny because now Sam, who founded ACG, is looking into how can he help other startups become as successful. So it's a good question. And I, I think we have an enormous amount of potential in Australia that just isn't realized. We have so much talent. And we have a lot of people that are that have a very different attitude to building these things. Whereas I see a lot of my American colleagues and it's all like, oh, venture capital, like, woo-ha, and it has to grow and we need to blah, blah. And the Australians more like, okay, how do we make this awesome? Right, there's a very different attitude to it, and I think that's very refreshing. So, yeah, I like that part. So, you said this is a talk that's leading towards uh, a new book. What What are you working on at the moment? Like books, big video projects, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that you want to share? Ooh, many things. Uh, yeah, so I am writing a book, and it's the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm. I'm is it your first one? Yeah. Well. It's not my first attempt, but it will be the first one I finish. <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm a pretty good writer, I've been told, but I'm not very fast, right? It takes me a long time to do it properly because a little bit of you know, perfectionism in there. So I'm doing that. Um, it's actually out in what's called MEEP, Manning, oh, yeah. Manning Early Access Program. Yeah, I have reviewed um, many of Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, so, so you can acquire it if you want to. And um, then I, uh, I run my YouTube channel. So every two weeks I put out a new video. Um, on something automation related or network related stuff that isn't programming or Microsoft. And that's fun because it's me and I get to do it my way and put in weird polka music if I want to kind of thing. I did the last video. Polka. Polka. Polka, polka, polka. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Which is, I I like that part of it. There's the creative side that sort of gets to go mad. Um, But um, uh, I just launched a new podcast. Yeah, which is interesting because this is a podcast. Um, and that's called Technically Possible, where we investigate certain technologies, how, what they're, where they're at today and how they in, affect humans more than anything. So it's not as much about the technology as it is about the impact of that technology and then what does it do in the future. Um, and it's quite – we have this well, – I like the format where we start sort of introduction to the topic, but then it's, there's a what we call a moral technicality, which is like a moral dilemma where the, the guests then have to come up with an answer to this thing that doesn't have an answer, right or wrong or yes or no. So, yeah, there's little little things like that. But it's, it's quite good. I, I enjoy it. I'm pretty proud of it. Um, so that's just like two episodes out now. Well, at the time recording. Um, and what else have we been doing? Uh, 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 many things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And um, if anyone wants to keep up to date with what you're up to, where's the best place to, to find that? Is there one one canonical source for all the other sources? Uh, Twitter's probably the best, at LastClint, or my website, lastclint.com. But that's about it. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Chris. Next, I am joined by Richard Gross. Let's start with what your talk was about, which I think was yesterday, which means I missed it. But what was your talk about? Uh, well, my talk was about remote scaled trunk based development. And I, I, I tried very hard to put as many buzzwords as I could in there, okay. but I, I stopped at five. So, um, what is, so what is, is that, uh, a trunk is not a term that's used so much 
in, I don't know, maybe, it, or maybe it is, but people don't realize it is. Like, what what are you specifically covering there that's different from what people might think of when they're using version control norm, normally, whatever that might mean? Oh. Uh, actually, my, my history is not that good, but uh, in CVS okay. and SVN, I think it was called Trunk. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's where the, the name branching comes from, right? You, you have a trunk and then you have branches coming off from that. And I don't know, JIT or Git for some reason decided to go for master instead and now for main. Um, but yeah, I mean, trunk based development, it's, it's one of the, the core, uh, extreme programming practices. Okay. Meaning, um, you are working all the time on trunk and you're doing at least, um, half daily more likely every hour you do a merge and you you push to ah, okay, okay. to trunk or to main or whatever yeah. you want to call it yeah. i mean continuous integration just calls it mainline so yeah okay why do you call that extreme programming isn't that kind of what most people do now or is it just where it came from in the first place uh, for me, that's that's where I first heard about okay. it. It's it's one or CI continuous integration. That's the one of the core practices of uh, extreme programming. And these days, everyone thinks CI means well GitLab pipeline or yeah. Azure DevOps, DevOps or whatever. So apparently, the the common term now is trunk based development. I mean, you could argue that CI and trunk based development they are slightly different. Because CI is the practice of merging as fast as possible with changes that everyone in your team has made so you can profit from them. So refactoring becomes nicer because every refactoring you do, well, you're making the code nicer. And the faster you can merge that back, the sooner everyone can profit from that. While on the other hand, trunk-based development just means I have a trunk and I work only on that. Yeah. And in CI, you could theoretically say, okay, let's do short left feature branches that live half a day and then merge them back. Um, and then you would technically not be working trunk-based, but that's kind of semantics. Okay. For, for me, TBD and CI usually means the same. And so what are the, the extra things you need to do on top to keep that at large scale and have it work? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so uh, for for us, we we said um, we are in a scaled, a scaled environment because we had uh, 20 developers at the end. We didn't start that way, but at the end we had 20 uh, divided into five teams of four people. So and four people is a nice number where you can do very nice mob programming or you can split up into pairs or at some point you just do sort of like individual programming. You, you sort of diverge and then you merge back together at the end of the day and you say, okay, I did this part of the user story. I did this part of user story and that's the way you also can integrate. Um, and that's as far as scaling went for us. And my talk uh, starts basically when we were, I think about six people in the beginning. And then we, uh, I, I describe everything we tried and everything we avoided and sort of things that we learned. And the idea is just to, to say, Hey, to scale to 20 or to scale to 25 or to scale to whatever 50, um, there's no single way. It's just, here's what we tried. This worked. Um, depending on your circumstances, it should probably also work because, you know, I'm describing mostly XP practices. Mm -hmm. And, uh, if, well, uh, it's different for you. Cool. That's why you have a retro. That's why you have uh, the dev talk where you talk about all these improvements. And then you have the slack, slack time in between to actually do the improvements if it comes to code or if it comes to special meetings and everything. Um, the one thing I just forgot um, <laughs> to say for this is uh, 
I start my talk by explaining why scaling is a very, very bad idea. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I did some some research and found out there's actually research about this. And it, there's a famous uh, yeah, the, law. The, yeah. About it, yeah. <laughs> Oh, the law. Uh, no, I was I was actually not uh, that. That's Goodhart's law. No, I can't remember. It's like throwing more developers. Doesn't yeah, always make you. I can't. Yeah, yeah. I'm but, sure. Who, I can't remember who it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, putting uh, putting more people on late project makes it, makes it later. And and the reason for that is just because you have much more connections that you need to talk to many, many, many more people and everything. And the more people you have working on the same problem, well, either you lose something and you have to talk, or you talk so much that you cannot work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, there's there's a research called the the Chaos Report, for example. It's the it's the most famous one, and it basically says, "Hey, uh, software is in deep crisis." Um, as it turns out, um, it actually says it's in super deep crisis because um, uh, many projects, uh, or it, it sort of divides our project into into three categories: into um, uh, successful, challenged, and uh, failure. <laughs> And it does this based on three categories. Yeah. Uh, it says, uh, is the project in time, in scope, and in budget? And if, well, it's delivered and um, it's not in time or in budget, it's, uh, it's, it's challenged. And if, well, it hasn't even been delivered, then it's failed. Yeah. And the only way, well, it's, then it's successful if all, all are true. Uh, but the problem is, um, it says, hey, the better you estimate... Uh, the more, uh, well, the better you estimate, um, no, sorry, if you estimate perfectly, then you're successful because then your scope numbers and your time numbers, and if they are correct and you estimate it correctly, then you are successful. But that means uh, you cannot change. You cannot say, I'm going to deliver different scope because you're measured according to the chaos report based on how well you meet those estimates, not how well you meet user needs, for example. And that's the the, the huge uh, critique that the Chaos Report has, uh, which is why they also said, okay, um, we're going to change the way we define success. And we, they said um, in time, um, in, uh, in budget, and uh, I think with a satisfactory result for the user. So that's the, the important change they made, meaning... You can now suddenly say, realize, hey, this feature that I thought was, was going to be a niche feature, it's super successful. I can now invest in that instead of having to stick to a plan, which is stupid. Yeah. yeah. And um, but nevertheless, it's still it's still very controversial. It's just out of this research, um, they also figured out and said the the bigger your projects are, the least likely they are to be successful. So small project is like, I don't know, 50% successful according to their criteria. And again, um, the way they measure this is very uh, less high critique uh, um, going on against it. Um, but when you ca- go to big projects, it suddenly becomes like 6% are successful and like, I don't know, 70% are failed. And then comes the interesting part for me because uh, this is highly controversial what they, uh, what, what they, um, how they categorize projects. But at the same time, what they now say uh, in a 2015, uh, 2013 Chaos Manifesto, they say, hey, how about you not do big projects? Mm-hmm. Because complexity and size trump all other factors. All other factors um, are less impactful for the success of your project. So if you can make it small and 
very, very not complex, then you are much more likely, according to their figures, to succeed. And that I can wholeheartedly agree with. And then build upon that. Yes. Yes. So they they say break down big projects into smaller projects that have separate business value that can be delivered individually, blah, 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 yada, yada, right? That's, that's, well, what Agile is about. That's, that's everything we've learned the last couple of, I don't know, 20 years. So I can completely get behind that. And they even have sort of this research, research to prove that it's good, even if their figures are, or the way the categories projects is controversial. The results are very interesting. And that's why I start to talk with this because it's, hey, how about you not try to do a scale project? How about you scale down the project? How about you try to do it with six developers? How about you do individual projects, business value and everything? Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, yeah, so great that I've said all this, but a customer came to us and he said, uh, I need four teams. Yeah. And then I'm like, yeah, yeah, how about you not get, how about we only give one team? No, 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 I, I need four teams. No. <laughs> yeah. It's always the problem is it's like, oh, we want less people and less budget. It's not usually something that people <laughs> want to do in business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was, that was interesting. I mean, I have a theory why this is. I think um, to many people, this is. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a consultant. I mean, yeah. our, our company does, does, really tailored software. We don't do products and everything. We, we at Mybon Wolf, we, we try to figure out, well, what is the best software that we can deliver? And sometimes that's not even software. Sometimes it's just, hey, about how about we improve this process? Mm-hmm. But um, uh, now a customer comes to us and he says, I've given me four developers. And we're like, no. So, and they, that's, 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 there's a core conflict there because as consultants, we are very happy to sell four teams. But at the same time, we know this is not a good idea. Mm. And that's, that became really a lot of challenge and try to get the customer to, to just not have four teams, just one. And in the end, he didn't budge. So what we, what we got was, um, something that worked for us, which was we start with six developers and then we, we add people to this. But these six people, they stay together for a couple of months and they, they figure out all their beef. You've described yourself on your sort of somewhat humorous profile as, <laughs> as, as a software archaeologist. What does that mean exactly? Does it mean anything in particular or is it? Oh, it's, um, it's interesting to ask it because I, um, so when I was introduced to the talk, well, she read my profile and afterwards she talked to me about this. And the interesting part is, um, the, the moderator, um, um, of my talk, she is actually an archaeologist. Okay. <laughs> and I, I explained, I explained it this way. I said, um, to me, a software archaeologist, uh, archaeologist is someone who's interested, really interested in legacy code. And, and he or she likes literally digging around, well, not literally, figuratively, digging around in the dirt. Yeah. Right. And you sort of dig around and you, well, you you find this piece of code or in architecture you find this column there and that column there and you find this basin there and you find an oven there and you realize oh this is a roman bathhouse (laughs) and for legacy code it's like you find these pieces and you in your head you sort of construct them together and you realize what was the code supposed to do Mm -hmm. right what was it meant to do in in a a philosophical sense and because you do, you you are interested in that. Now you can figure out. Well, is it what it should do, right? 
Um, and for that, you, you, again, you use your, your wits and your, the code, but also business analyst and you, you talk to users and everything and you figure out what is this supposed code supposed to do. And then you, well, you put it together. You, you, you get your bathhouse again. Do you have a museum? <laughs> uh, yeah, we, <laughs> uh, funny you should say that we display code in a code museum. Uh, oh, that's, yeah. Um, so, so what we in our company, um, uh, actually do is we do, uh, audits, we call them, but not like, um, uh, checklist audits or something like this, but, uh, we, we sit together in different workshops together with developers and we figure out why, why what's the issues with these legacy code base. Mm -hmm. And um, often enough, um, they usually have an idea what's wrong, but um, they are not allowed to say it, or they cannot they cannot articulate it in in, in quite a understandable way. And that's where we can help actually and say like, okay, well, look, da, 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 da. also because we are consultants, we see a lot of software, so we have much experience and we can actually figure out, okay, well, look, you've only had this world view for five years. Well, there's this other world view out there. Mm -hmm. Today we use, well, I don't know, GitLab. <laughs> or some teams don't use Git, right? <laughs> we can yeah. suggest basics like this, but, um, now as for, as for a museum, um, to in these, in these audits in three weeks, we try to really understand what's the business and what's the code and what, what are the issues and then suggest how to get out of there. Um, to do that, well, it's a million lines of code. Mm -hmm. I, I, cannot read that in a week. I cannot even read that in a month, right? Um, so we actually develop a tool and uh, we call it CodeCarter. And it's, it visualizes each file in the code base as a building, a building which has um, uh, a size, a floor of the building, basically, the height and the color. And because these three attributes of the building, um, you can put different metrics on them. So if you put uh, lines of code on the, on the floor, um, well, the bigger the map, the larger the code base. Then if you put uh, something like McCabe complexity, the, the number of business decisions in the code, if you put it on height, well, you get very large buildings. Mm -hmm. And now if you put code coverage on the color, you sort of get these nice red buildings. And you can very easily um, find your hotspots because then, well, what's large and high and, and red? <laughs> Let's start looking at that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, of course, I mean, it's, it's metrics, right? Um, as soon as the metric becomes a target, yada, 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 right? It ceases to be a good metric, uh, because people start to optimize for that. So for us, it's not really these metrics that matter. It's more like we can figure out where to start the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, because we have this map, <laughs> we can actually, uh, we have an export function as a 3D printer. <laughs> do, do you publish these anywhere or is it too no no yeah. god no no that would break confidentiality but yeah. um uh, it's an open source tool oh, okay. and uh, um each each developer could just analyze her own code and the the customer we thought of giving the customer like a like an exit present it was like hey this is your code <laughs> and i don't know it's it it's sort of strange to do this and to say, oh, look, these uh, red and high buildings, um, <laughs> that's your code base. Depends on the client, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, depends, depends on the client. I would like it. <laughs> well, I don't think my buildings would be very big. <laughs> yeah, and um, 
And that's also interesting because some code bases are, are very. Um, I had I had one last week, um, and this this code base they had, had very few large buildings, or like a couple which had more than three hundred um, lines of code, and was like, yeah, that's not bad and everything. Um, but they then um, it starts to become a more interesting conversation because then you start figuring out, okay, well. Obviously, you need some help because we, we call it the modernization audit. Um, or in, in German, it's Sanierung, yeah, which would yeah, yeah. more translate to renovation. Yeah. Um, so just by the name, we are called because there's something wrong. Yeah. Uh, look at this map and like, doesn't seem there is something wrong, right? I mean, some things were a bit iffy, um, but nothing really bad. And, um that's where the, the, all these workshops and, and working together with the developers comes in because then it becomes really this, something is wrong. Let me t t tell me, how, how do you release? How do you, how do you work? Mm -hmm. What's, what's your process? How do feature, how do features get resolved? When do you, uh, because it was an SDK, when, when do you decide to make a new version? Everything. <laughs> then it became very, very apparent that it's just very chaotic how they yeah. work. And, The interesting part is because it's uh, each each SDK I audited was just developed by one person. It was very, um, and they had they had this vision, and that's why it, it was just one person, and and they were experienced enough that they wrote clean, well, not perfect, but reasonably clean code. But it was kind of chaotic, and they they hadn't really thought through a couple of processes. Because when I looked at their, their GitLab CI pipelines, it's like the last four months, all pipelines finished on red. Because the last step was the publish step, and they they hadn't bought any well hadn't bought they hadn't um, had some uh, uh, authentication issues because they they couldn't publish to Artifactory, and yeah so what do they do where well, they build it on their machine then oh, they right. publish it to Artifactory from their machine, <laughs> and, and I'm like okay sure <laughs> you can do that but at the same time I mean for for Swift for example. Um, in Swift, you uh, you have a package manager, yeah. the, the Swift yeah. package manager, but you include source code. Yeah. Uh, so you don't don't access Artifactory, access source code. And um, this source code, well, you need access to the GitLab pipeline for that. Well, not to the pipeline, but you can yeah. see the GitLab and you see that all the builds are red and it's, ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of yeah. also trust yeah, you see that from outside, right? GitHub as well, a lot of build failed and it's kind of like, <laughs> mm -hmm. Should I trust this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, when you look at the code, you, you can very easy, or very easy. You can you can see that well, they seem to generally know what they're doing. They have a not a good test coverage and everything. Yeah. But from the outside, it looks it looks quite bad. <laughs> It's a good solid buildings, but some leaks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or, or more like more like the foundation. They they yeah. started doing it, but it's like it's like oh, well, here's a hole in your foundation. Um, are you sure you want to continue building the house? And it's it's almost finished the house, but yeah. it's like the floor is missing. Building on a swamp. Yeah, it's like Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> swamp uh, isn't isn't Rome a swamp? It's like seven hills, and in between everything is a swamp. I don't know. <laughs> That's a big decision. Okay, um, so if people want to follow more of 
your ideas and thoughts, where's the best place? Do you have a website or a social media account? Or... Oh, uh, I, do, I do actually have a website, uh, and I've recently begun updating it again. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's, it's Rich Arg. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's supposed to be a joke, but the problem is I always have to pronounce it. So R-E-C-H-A-R-G-H dot D-E. Okay. Uh, that's my blog, and uh, um, because in Twitter my handle was taken, it's the other way around on Twitter, so it's... <laughs> A R G H Rich. <laughs> and the um the, the you click code Carter? Yeah. Is it, yeah. Yeah, where, it's uh, where can that be found? Yeah. Um so it's on my, my company's GitHub account. Um so that would be uh let's see if I can uh well it's GitHub <laughs> slash my one wolf. Yeah. So then it's that's M I M A I B O R N W O L F F. Yeah. Bad it's that. Uh, and that's slash code Carter. And because I think Carter like, is in the map, like C A R T. Yeah. So it's code C O D E and then C H A R T A. Oh. With an H in it. Yeah. Everyone says code code charter. Okay. Right. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. Someone someone came up with it. Everyone pronounced it wrong. Uh, that's why it's a good name. <laughs> um, and yeah. I think it's Latin or, so, or Greek, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. apparently that's how you, you, you're supposed to pronounce it, Charter, but it's spelled kind of Charter. So. Okay, okay. But not Charter, Charter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm here with Rafael. Now, I've actually seen your talk already, but in a different city. Um, what were you talking about that build stuff? Um, okay, so... Uh, uh, literally about um, how the way we interact with um, technology is probably going to change in upcoming years uh, in a sense that um, so until now whenever we interact with um, computers we usually do I mean we do this uh, either with our fingers or mouses or any other input devices uh, but we interact in, with 2D projections of anything, right? Uh, and what's going to change, in my opinion, uh, and not only my opinion, is that we're going to start adding data and things on top of real things, and we're going to start interacting with digital content uh, in a more spatial way so that it's actually around us and we could use literally this data that is around us, not only on some screen or projection in front of us. And I think this was in your talk when I saw it last week (laughs) at a different event. Um, This is already happening in industry, especially with AR glasses and things where you like kind of documentation and parts numbers and things like that. So do you see something like that coming for more people? I don't know. Uh, Something like translations, actually, no, that's in English. Uh, something like translations and other information you might need, or I might get yeah, your for anything. Okay. I like this comparison. Like when, uh, so when if, if you remember how we transitioned from uh, using just computers, laptops to smartphones, mm-hmm. you're old enough to remember this transition, right? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it was not a long time ago. It was what, like 15 years ago, maybe tops, right? I mean, it all happened with. I mean, it's it, it. There's no clear date, but when um, first iPhone was released, and then the Google G1 phone, the era of smartphones 
began and we started migrating stuff from our PCs and laptops to tablets and smartphones, right? So there was like lots of work because all of a sudden everyone wanted an app, mm. right? Especially when the Apple released yeah. App Store, right? All of a sudden like, oh, we have to have an app for that, right? And every, every single business wanted to have an app, right? And, um, uh, so yeah, we are busy, like developers, we are busy creating apps. Yeah. I was in the mobile business for a long time and I created several apps because, yeah. and they were not like customer facing, like regular customer facing apps, but business apps yeah. for like yeah. internal yeah. business apps for automating or supporting some kind of most line of, of most work. Most did all the same thing. Exactly. Lists of stuff. <laughs> exactly. A list of stuff or service maintenance or whatever. I mean, and, but we yeah. had to have an app for that, right? To, to get some data from some kind of backend and display it on your smartphone, yeah. right? So that an engineer or a service person could just go to the field without a laptop or a piece of paper where he or she would do the notes, but rather the notes were being done on the smartphone. Yeah. And that helped a lot because I was literally in a, I was solving one scenario once like 10 years ago, 2012, that engineers, when they were going to the factory floor to maintenance a piece of equipment, they took a printed piece of paper mm. and they were like taking notes on it, like checking, there was checklist. So they were checking because it wasn't easy to go around with your laptop. And those were times before uh, tablets and smartphones. Yeah. I mean, I, surely we did have like pocket PCs and all that stuff, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying it like mainstream tablet and smartphone yeah. availability, right? So. You mean you didn't have a Palm Pilot? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was available. Someone could say, hey, we yeah, had like yeah. Windows Pocket PC in like 1996 yeah. or whatever, but you know what I mean, yeah. right? Uh, and, and then they, they wanted, the, it was 2012, so it was, the iPhones were getting more and more popular. It was like iPhone four times, I think, or four S. Um, and all of a sudden business said, okay, we have smartphones on the market and we still use a piece of paper because we can't take laptop to the factory floor because it's just not handy. So maybe we could put the whole procedure mm. within an app and then that engineer could just go with a list, check this here and just check things here, right? And have the device in the, in her pocket, right? And that's a real thing. And I, I can assume it happened in like multiple enterprises out there. Like everyone was writing apps. So right now the technology starts, um, started, um, uh, so evolved that much so that it, it, it's now possible to have, um, real lightweight, kind of a headset. It doesn't have to be glasses. It could be like monocular kind of screen that just is in front of one of your eyes, etc. And then all of a sudden it occurs that, hey, uh, we can migrate stuff that we have on our mobile phones to headsets mm. and make our work even more efficient because, well, you have your hands-free, you have um, voice-activated control of everything, right? And you have your display all the time in front of your eye, right? And so what I am anticipating is that sooner or later, we're going to be rewriting everything we have on our phones as apps to some kind of other apps that are going to be, you know, installed on our glasses, et cetera. Because it's, it's not like you can uh, like move this, um, like for example, Instagram app to the 
to the to the um, uh, some kind of a headset because that's a whole different paradigm of interaction of displaying things etc. So we're gonna be migrating everything probably, yeah. and most probably that's gonna happen when probably Apple will release something and that's gonna hit mainstream and. Apple will say, obviously, that, that they just invented AR and stuff. Uh, that's what I am anticipating. That's most probably sooner than going to happen. Yeah, I, I must admit that people keep talking about the, the Apple headset, and I'm still, I'm still um, unconvinced. I don't know, but we'll see, I guess. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, what we can see is that Apple is actually pushing AR technology 3D really, really hard. 3D or whatever it's called, their format. It's been popping up UD, in a lot of their applications. U, yeah. UDSZ. Yeah. yeah. So you can create them in Keynote now. Yeah. And they yeah. have a, the phones have a and lot the, of... You have like yeah. new iPhones have the LiDAR sensor yeah. to can basically scan everything yeah. and move it to, to this format and then display it in augmented reality and they have ARKit which is now in the version of 6. Yeah. And all the features that they're putting there are like pretty amazing yeah. actually. One of the best on the market. So the only missing link here is the device when it comes to Apple. And my opinion, I mean, we know Apple, so they're not going to release something yeah. which is crappy or that the technology is not there, but we can somehow release something. If they're going to release something, that's something that's actually going to be usable and idiot-proof and nice and and good-looking, etc. Yeah. right? I mean, we probably could agree on that. And that's why probably Apple, in my opinion, is not releasing anything right now because the technology is still not there, right? So, so do you think if if uh, if the right companies were to release um, what they perceive to be the kind of consumer level um, of AR in the next year or so, so the, the equivalent of the iPhone, original iPhone, the equivalent of the Moto G1, that was it was, but then those early generations. Do you think that's where we're going to be? It's going to be those first generation devices, or do you think that the industry has already learned a lot and they're going to be a little bit further along, more like the iPhone three or four at release? It's always like that. It's always first generation yeah. things, right? Even when Apple released first Apple Watch, it was eh, it was okay, yeah. right? But it wasn't like super cool. I mean, there were other watches that you could you could use. Um, you. You can see what um, what what Meta is doing with uh, Quests. Mm. So the first one was uh, pretty good, actually. But if you look how they evolved until the Quest Pro, it's actually a huge leap, right? So um, I think I think people's expectations are like, okay, give us the headsets because we have all the fancy smartphones right now. So we are expecting that. If when we would get a headset, that's going to be a proper AR, like in Minority Report or Star Wars or whatever, right? Yeah. But we have to slow down a bit because probably is it's going to be like you said, it's going to be like first iteration of devices and yeah. we have to learn how to use it. We have to see if it actually works for us, etc. So, So, yeah. On that subject of Minority Report, I'm glad you brought that up because there's an anecdote I read in a... And a book, a really great book actually that's now over 10 years old called Make It So, where they looked at the comparisons between real world interfaces and science fiction interfaces and how they've sort of learned from each other. There was an example in there about Minority Report in that the interface that Tom Hanks? No. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise <laughs> uses existed and worked. 
but doing this above your heart the whole time is actually really tiring. So is there, is there maybe a potential similar problem with AR that maybe the strain on your eyes or using your arms at chest level all the time is too exhausting? Like, have you tried any of these things long term yourself to see if that's a problem? I spend a significant time using HoloLenses. Uh, well, when it comes to HoloLenses, for example, it's too heavy to have it uh, on yeah, your yeah. on your head all the time. Uh, but on the other hand, if you look at um, the experiences where you use your eyes to select things yep. and and choose things, it's way less tiring. Uh, but I guess we need you know, more data on it, like yeah. more people using it and actually we'll see what's going on, right? If yeah. it's good or bad for us. Some of that technology, like eye tracking and taking it to the next level is actually very, um, it's much more usable by a lot of um, people with um, impairments yeah, yeah. who can't use arms. Oh, Using cool. a mouse has always been a struggle, but eye tracking has been yeah. used in that context for quite some time already. Oh, absolutely. So it opens yeah. it up, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's gaze even further. We've done AR. It's yesterday's news. <laughs> what do you think is going to be next? I don't know. Uh, what, what, what I okay next next would be this metaverse thing. But the metaverse term is uh, actually um, misused right now yeah. nowadays a lot, and there's like lots of confusion with it. And lots of people, they do not understand what it is, but they keep saying it's a bad thing, for example, because, well, Facebook named themselves uh, Meta and they're doing the Metaverse and it's probably very bad. Exactly. <laughs> but but the, the thing that Facebook did, that Zuckerberg did uh, for the Metaverse and the, this part of the industry was actually a bad thing that happened. I mean, I'm, I'm happy they're doing it because they have enough money to actually push this technology forward, right? Especially that we can see the actual results with the devices that they're pushing. But with them taking that name, uh, there's a lot of like bad rubber at Metaverse right now. But when it comes to Metaverse, there's no definition actually mm -hmm. out there. It's like yeah. you would ask different people and you would get different definitions of Metaverse. But what, what like... What I would like, what I like to think about, um, the way I like to think about it is we will eventually have like different metaverses, meaning the one that you could use with AR and the one that you could use with VR. So the VR ones will be like Ready Player One, uh, Horizon, uh, Horizon Words from Facebook, et cetera. Like completely artificial world where you can immerse yourself and just be on some kind of social platforms, which could be good. I mean, you can see a good sides of it. So for example, um, if we, we had pandemics, right? So imagine you have this technology, uh, so that, for example, kids are not going to school via teams, but they can put a headset on yep. and actually hang out yep. with other avatars of their friends in the classroom where the teacher would be actually in the classroom, right? That would be a whole different experience because the remote, um, education basically didn't work, at least in Poland. Right. It was uh, like a crappy experience. Yep, yep. So people were muted and disabled cameras and the kids were like doing like whatever else. I think most teachers just didn't, they didn't give up, but they gave up working too hard for a exactly. few months because it was too hard. <laughs> exactly. Right. Because, well, we had, the, we have the technology, but it's yeah. not good. Right. So I, I see, I see that this metaverse could be something, mm. right. 
uh, also people with impairments or uh, people that can't leave uh, home, yeah. they could be immersed into this kind of um, environment and just hang out there, for example. Very remote places. Exactly. You know, Canada or, pioneered remote learning years ago because exactly. it's such a big country. Exactly. Yeah. Or, yeah, you can hang out with your friends in an avatar way because, well, you live like somewhere yeah. like in a remote place, but you can hang out with your colleagues or friends in some kind of metaverse thing. So I can see positives of all of that. Yeah. It, things can go really bad as well, but, well, same happened with smartphones and social yeah. media, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it's all good. I mean, I like Facebook. I like Twitter, but... It's a whole like shit show, everything, everywhere, right? If you look at it, isn't it, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, we have bad things on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and we have uh, good usages of it, right? So um, same going to happen with Metaverse, right? But the other Metaverse thing um, that's going to happen is this Metaverse for augmented reality, mm -hmm. which is essentially what my talk is about, um, where... We're going to have this digital twin of everything in our world. And then, for example, we could, using any device, right, be it a phone or some kind of headset, whatever, we could start using um, this digital content that would be shareable. So, for example, uh, I could just put my headset on or have my glasses, regular glasses, and just, I don't know, render a, a board game here. Mm -hmm. And you could play with me on this non-existent board game yep, yep. because we can share this virtual reality, the, the, the virtual objects in this um, physical space. But we have to, but this physical space uh, has to be mapped and that map has to be accessible by my devices and your devices. Yep. So this is the biggest problem to, to solve right now. Um, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a big next thing. So for example, uh, Walking, like, imagine walking on the streets with your glasses and um, you could have some 3D stuff overlaid on top of everything, basically, to enhance our world, right? Of course, things here can go really bad and things can go really good, right? Because we, we, can, we can think about bad things, right? Advertising, mostly. Advertising. <laughs> it's going to happen, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe it would be more pushed into like advertising into this um, uh, virtual uh, overlay of the world and the physical advert, uh, adverts would disappear. Who knows, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ad blocker. Ad blocker. <laughs> or, or imagine this kind of use, use. If you have a nice computing power in your head and glasses and AI, I mean, what would stop us from blurring every single billboard? Yeah. I mean, I can see it uh, happening, to be honest, right? To wear glasses my entire life, it would be kind of cool to do something more with them and actually have an advantage as being a glasses wearer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen some prototypes. Uh, it was like prototypes on um, Oculus Rift, the, the, the real previous one, uh, previous Oculus, uh, with some cameras attached, etc. But they did uh, like a pass-through AR kind of glasses uh, from it. And they were uh, doing the, the ad or the brand um uh brand um brand blocker or some, some some sort not ad blocker but brand blockers whenever you looked at the at the bottle of coca-cola and when it detected it's coca-cola it blurred it you know 
So it was possible like several years ago. So I can imagine this kind of things happening, right? I like it. it it sounds more like Black Mirror episode where they blurred the faces or the people. You could have you watched it? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was there was this, uh, this feature of, of of one device that you could like block people. So if I would block you, you would be blurred in my you know like in my word and your <laughs> voice your voice would be uh distorted so i wouldn't hear what you're actually saying to me i would see some cr- uh, hear some cracks only right make like apologizing to people impossible right? yeah <laughs> like block you <laughs> well things can go bad and wrong yeah, yeah, of course yeah. but as i said uh, no one anticipated how smartphones and social media will evolve i mean yeah. we we as people invented it and we're like hey nice we have facebook and stuff but no one anticipated that TikTok will uh, uh, happen at some point or uh, Uber, for example, right? Things like that. I mean, TikTok, bad thing. Uber, good thing, right? So there are like bad and good things and the same is going to happen in the, those the new computing platform, yeah. right? But for some reason, people likes to, um, li- like to be skeptics and they usually bring uh, those bad things that might happen with yeah. metaverse and all the devices, etc. But I like to see it as an opportunity for creating like actual enhancements to our daily lives, right? Cool. That's um, how, how I think about it. I think it's it's definitely healthy to have both perspectives. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I feel like we could have gone deeper into many different subjects, but if people want to hear more about what you're thinking about and talking about? Is there a website or somewhere they can find uh, that? Twitter at yeah. Rafik, R-A-F-E-K. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Next, I am joined by Dylan Beatty, who just did a very, uh, I've forgotten the right words here, a very uh, whistle-stop tour. <laughs> I was about to say slapdash. That's not the right word. A whistle-stop tour through ray tracing in JavaScript. Yeah. Uh, I guess maybe someone asked you this question just as I left. I mean, I can think of reasons, but what motivated you to want to do that talk? Uh, so I, I do a lot of things uh, with uh, using computers as a creative tool mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I do because I want to find out how it works. I want to take something apart and uh, try and build one for myself to see if I really understand it. And, you know, doing that, I never built a ray tracer before. Mm-hmm. I, when I was younger, um, was a, there's a thing called Povray, the Persistence of Vision Ray Tracer, which is a, an open source project from before the World Wide Web. It's a project so old that it used to be uh, maintained on a CompuServe forum. Yep. And that is, is fantastic. And I discovered that on a, a 486 in about 1995, 96, and just got obsessed with it. And I'm a, I'm a sucker for any kind of computationally creative process where you have to run it to find out if it did what you think. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, very, very real time, put this there, put that there, drag, drop, drag, drop, it all works. And you're like, well, yeah, okay, there's no suspense in that. There's no the, the kind of the suspense and then the, the disappointment of, oh, it didn't quite do what I wanted it to do. And so you adjust a parameter. And, you know, I've uh, found lots and lots of fun with, so, you know, one of the things that I think is a, uh, a reason why so many people find programming a compelling activity is that frustration, 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 success. Um, You know, it's that cycle of, oh, it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Oh, uh, that bug. And, you know, we've had, I'm sure we've all had days, I'm sure you have as well, where you just, you're like banging your head against a wall and you're like, it doesn't work and I can't see why and there's nothing wrong and it's probably DNS because it's always DNS. (laughs) 
Um, and but you know the uh, yeah the uh, sort of the, the, the red green refactor bit of the right it doesn't work let's make it work okay it works can we make it better we can oh look we can we can bum a couple of cycles by changing that line there and we can tweak this and this thing doesn't need to be here and but then you run it and you see if you were right you know you are constantly being reminded that you are a fallible human who makes mistakes and makes assumptions and being constantly sort of uh, invited to challenge those and be like, okay, have I jumped ahead too many steps here? And, you know, I'm I'm a big fan. There's a lot of folks here actually talking about iterative development. And, you know, you you move one thing. I was watching Kevlin's uh, talk yesterday about refactoring, and he's saying, you know, you should never – have a point where, like, your your code base is the equivalent of the engine of your car dismantled on the workbench. You know, you're not going to be able to take the whole thing apart and then put it back together. You want to fix one detail at a time and have it working at the end of every one of these tiny little steps. Because if it doesn't work, you know where to look because you know where the mistake was. Yeah. And uh, so to sort of circle back to the original question, I enjoy processes where you're like, I think I need to do this. And you move something and then you run it again. And there is enough of a delay that it gives you a little bit of time to think, but not so much of a delay that you go and do something else. Yeah. And, well, you know, when I used to be into ray tracing, I got three shots a day. I would get up, and I would see what happened overnight, and I would adjust something, and I would start it running. I would go to school, and I would get in from school. I would spend an hour or two playing around yeah. with low-resolution previews. and Because, uh, you know, the thing about ray tracing is you can always trade image quality for performance. Yeah. Um, and on the, on the 486... I could get a, you know, it's kind of 320 by 200 VGA image. If I switched off reflection and I switched off highlighting and I told it just to render the block colors, you could kind of get the layout of a scene and that would take about two or three minutes to render each pass. So you could go, I think everything's in the right place now. And then you switch everything back on, you'd start it running, you know, go eat dinner, watch TV, do homework, watch Back to the Future on VHS again, go to bed, you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, move that over there. Go and take the bus to school. Yeah. And but now you know we we are like the stuff I was showing off today. You can build an engine that runs in a browser. In the longest rendering time I got on the examples I showed in there was about twenty eight seconds. Yeah. Which, which is long enough to be interesting. To, to a lot of people, that's slow these days. I know. I know. Um, so you know, ray tracing. I've always been interested in, and it was like a you know. I would love to build one of those and see how it works. Yeah. And I'm, uh, so I'm completely independent. You know, I, I, for the last couple of years, I haven't had a job. So I, uh, I spend half my time doing things that pay quite well and the other half doing things that don't pay at all. I, I'm actually entering <laughs> that similar part of my life. And that's um, why I was fascinated by your talk. I've, I've kind of been doing some similar experiments with, uh, it's actually got a, a, a technical term of like computational creativity, which mm-hmm. yeah. is never too formal. Actually, I have a talk with that exact title. <laughs> and uh, the first place I ever found that phrase was in Sid Meier's biography. Uh, he's oh, a oh, guy wrote yeah. Railroad Tycoon yeah, yeah, and all yeah, those yeah, kinds yeah. of games. And uh, yeah, it's called, oh, it's called like biography or something. It's got yeah. a really weird name. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that was really interesting. And he was talking specifically about wanting to be able to design a computer game that could come up with original murder mysteries for you to solve. And he said, you know, like mystery novels, classic mysteries like, you know, Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot, they have a structure to them. But there is mystery within the structure which makes them compelling. Actually, this wasn't going to be my next question, but on a tangent, because we've gone there, 
Um, I heard something about this recently. Sherlock Holmes is an interesting case because Conan Doyle hated writing them. Yeah. And half the time it makes no sense because you just didn't care. It was like, whatever. It doesn't have to make sense. I just want to get it done so I can go back to writing books about killing the natives. Um, but Agatha Christie apparently is, was quite groundbreaking for the time because up until that point, most mysteries would be something that most people could figure out where she decided to take it to another level and make this kind of like aha moment where most people are just like, what? <laughs> but if you trace it back, it makes sense. But most normal people would have never seen it. Yeah. And so she apparently took things. She was the first to do this, apparently. I don't know. I'm not sure. I can't remember where I heard it and whether I believe the source, but it so, was. To, to take your tangent onto an even bigger <laughs> my favorite fact about those two authors specifically, which is one of those really bizarre coincidences is Conan Doyle popularized alpine skiing in the UK, and Agatha Christie was one of the very first people to write about longboard surfing. So these two, you know, popular sports, you know, longboard, yeah. like big break Hawaiian surfing and downhill skiing, both of those kind of were not really a thing at all in the UK until the two most prominent yeah. murder mystery authors of the 19th century were like, well, we're going to go on our respective vacations yeah. and come back and write about it. It's kind so, of interesting people in their own right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so apart from being sort of creative purposes, yeah. Why, who, who and why was Ray cast, Ray casting added to a browser? Like what actually would be a practical use of it? So, uh, the main reason why I enjoy working with JavaScript is, is a, it's a very, very nice teaching language yeah. because the barrier to entry is very, very low. Um, you know, if you can write something in JavaScript, you can run it on any computer on the planet by clicking a link. Yeah. And even the next level up is like, you know, if you take sort of orders of magnitude, click this link and it works. And, you know, Gmail, we're like, well, yeah, we want email running in a browser. Google Maps runs in a browser. Oh. Um, Google Docs, all these kinds of things. Yeah. You know, you think, well, what's if it didn't run in a browser, then what? And the best case scenario is probably the App Store. Yeah. Uh, you know, you click and fingerprint authentication. And, yeah, maybe you pay for it. Maybe it's free. But you need to have gone out and bought the right kind of device to be able to work with that particular ecosystem. Or then you're into, you know, like desktop downloads. You go here, you download, you install it. And, you know, it's the the sort of dream of write once, run anywhere. Because mm. I've been doing this long enough that I remember when the future was Java. Yep. And, and <laughs> JavaScript was, well, maybe we might need something that allows this applet to talk to that applet. And, of course, the applets would do all the heavy lifting. But maybe you needed to, I don't know, like you wanted a, a component that composed an email and a component that sent it. And JavaScript would glue them together, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and, of course, you know, Java has become an incredibly successful language in enterprise and in Android development. Um, and occasionally, you know, there are bits and pieces of, of Java desktop yeah. that, uh, you know, the, the ones that surprise me are the ones you turn around after six months and go, oh, Oh, look at that, it's Java. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. Um, you know, the early experience of Java as a desktop thing was like, yes, welcome to this application that looks nothing like anything else on your Windows machine. Doesn't crashed. respect <laughs> any of your keyboard shortcuts, uses half of your system memory and still doesn't yeah. work. Um, and it never kind of, you know, Java is a, a desktop application development language. You know, they were at one point Corel, uh, Corel of Corel Draw fame. They owned WordPerfect. Um, so they bought the WordPerfect franchise. They had the Novell uh, spreadsheet. They had uh, GroupWise. They had like the whole, everything in the Microsoft Office suite they had a competitor to. And uh, they started working on porting them all to Linux to run on their own Linux distribution. 
It's about 1997, oh, 98. And, yeah, yeah, you know, there was this sort of serious... Are they really going to get yeah. Corel Linux with a JVM with WordPerfect for Java and Corel Draw for Java? And I would love to visit that alternate timeline where that thing beat Microsoft Office 97 and see what it looked like. But, you know, it didn't. It just it never got there. And I, I don't know why. I never kind of read up on the the story very much. But... um. You know, so so uh, Java had this right once run anywhere, but actually JavaScript is the thing that realized that dream. Yep. And so for you know, someone says, "Oh, I want to learn to program computers," or "I want to, I want to understand a particular kind of algorithm or something." You know, I've built uh, so I've built a ray tracing engine in JavaScript. I've built a uh, interpreter for esoteric languages in JavaScript mm-hmm. um, for a rock star esoteric, oh, okay. as in esoteric programming languages. Uh, so I, I invented a, a joke programming language a couple of years ago um, as a joke. It was never supposed to be real. It was a parody specification that got implemented, and uh, the implement the first implementation was in Scala, that you know famously widespread and accessible language that everyone knows. Do you know how to run a Scala program? I have no idea. Like, I, I, yeah, it'd be like this, this, yeah, this, <laughs> these docs and, and run that. Um, and there was another one in Rust, and you know it was all very interesting. But I was like this. Kind of enough people are interested that I think if we lowered the barrier to entry, there'd be even more interest. Mm. Um, and so I figured out, how do you build an interpreter in JavaScript for a, an esoteric programming language? And uh, it's maybe interesting to say, if you can't build it in JavaScript, you don't really understand it. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that the JavaScript implementation will be performant or compatible or remotely fitted for any serious application. But as a way of constructing something, as a way of working through the steps and then being able to put it out somewhere where other people can very, very easily see what you're working on and contribute their own ideas and, you know, as a sort of teaching language, demonstration language. Um, and I also like it. You know, I enjoy uh, – for anything important, I tend to stick with .NET for, for back-end stuff. But I find the – browser API surface that exists yeah. now. Yeah. Um, you know, what do you want? You want to talk to a MIDI controller? You want to talk to a piano? Oh, yeah, this line of code. Yeah. You want to do 3D graphics? This line of code. You want the accelerometer? What do you want? I want a web page that goes red when you throw your phone in the air. All right, we can do that, yeah. you know. Um, and that's just wonderful. You know, it's, it's this wonderful playground. Uh, the only thing comparable, I think, is Python on Raspberry Pi devices for doing uh, very kind of low-scale hardware hacking and, and that kind of thing. But even then, you know, that's uh, GPIO ports, and this thing's got to talk to that. And the next and thing you need you're... To you're install you're, Python. So you need to install like Python, that. yeah. <laughs> Which is probably installed, but not always as simple as you It's mean. probably installed twice and, yes. and probably won't work because yes. when you type Python, you don't know if you get version 2 or version 3. I know. So, I, actually, this is anyway. The number of times I've installed uh, npm packages and had Python errors, which never made any sense to me, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was chatting with uh, David Whitney, who's uh, one of the other folks I know very well from the, the London sort of .NET community, and uh, you know, we were talking about the fact that. Uh, for all the relative strengths and weaknesses of the different languages and platforms and ecosystems, .NET, there is very little in the runtime which is actually broken. Yeah. Um, almost every other mainstream language has something where a design decision early on proved immutable, and so they've had to hack their way around it in all kinds of ways. Mm. Uh, I mean, I guess the most extreme example of this is polyfills in JavaScript yep. to, you know, get around down-level browsers and stuff. Sort which are going now, which is... <laughs> yeah. Going, which no, is I mean, mod- modern browsers are, yeah. you know, I, I was a professional web developer for many years, yep. 
and the difference between using JavaScript for fun and it only has to work in Chrome and doing JavaScript for money when it had to work on Netscape and yep. Internet Explorer. Oh, my. oh night no, and day, you know. Yeah. Well, we didn't quite get to what someone might use ray tracing for. Was it be games or just um, something else? So, VR, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, fundamentally, the, the industrial applications of ray tracing are very, very high-quality pre-rendered graphics. Yep. So cinema, advertising, movie special effects, television... Uh, you know, it has approached the, the point now where it's quite common for, you know, still advertisements, print advertisements and those kinds of things to just render the product instead of getting a photographer into yeah, the studio okay. with it, um, you yeah. know, and lots of visualizations, uh, car commercials use this kind of thing a lot because you don't have to find just the right road on just yeah. the right day with just the right weather. You're like, nah, fake it. Yeah. It's, we know what the car looks like. We've got high def 3d meshes of it already. Um, how, how long has it been in, uh, in, is it a browser standard or is it only? Oh, no, no, no. This, yeah. so this is uh, the thing I was doing today is literally building it from the ground up. Um, so the browser has a thing called Canvas, yeah. which is a, yeah. just a 2D surface where you can draw graphics. And so what I was doing today was literally taking people step by step through how does a ray tracer work? Well, it works by taking each pixel on your canvas and simulating the interaction of light rays with objects and lights and textures and things to figure out what color you paint that pixel and then you paint the pixel and you move on to the next one you figure out what color that one needs to be and you move on to the next one and you figure out what color that needs to be and it's all done by literally doing 3d vector mathematics to model the way that light interacts with yeah, surfaces and perspective and you showed though i can't imagine why they'd be in the browser like they're sort of camera souls or is that just what you oh, called that's it? no that's, that's the stuff we wrote uh, That's yeah. all, you know, the browser gives you the JavaScript runtime and the Canvas API. And yeah. everything else was built from the ground up. That That's the whole point of the, the exercise. Do you ever so, see it as something they might add to standard? There is, uh, so there's a thing called WebGL. Okay, Because yeah. uh, the thing about ray tracing is we are still um, a way off. There are some proof-of-concept demos which are very close to real-time. Uh, some of the stuff that NVIDIA are working on with their latest GPUs yeah. is, is very, very close to that. But, uh, you know, ray tracing is slow. It's always been computationally very, very intensive. Uh, I showed a live demo at the end of the talk today and had a bunch of folks come afterwards going, my phone got really warm. And it's like, well, yeah, of course it got warm. You just maxed out every core in your iPhone 14 drawing 3D graphics. That's yeah. um, So uh, for anything that needs to be real-time interactive, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Um, now I, I'm sure we'll get there, you know, because one of the, the things about ray tracing is it, it's what scientists call embarrassingly parallel. Um, if you have a, a computer that can render a pixel in one millisecond and you need to render a million pixels, well, either it takes a million milliseconds, but if you have a million computers, mm -hmm. you can do a megapixel image every millisecond, which means you have a thousand frames per second. Yeah. Well, yeah. we don't have a million computers, but maybe you can get a thousand dedicated cores at which point you're talking about a million over a thousand, you know, you're, you're then talking about 10, maybe 100 frames per second on that. And, and this is, you opened the talk talking about uh, Pixar. Yeah. And I think this is what I remember the the software they made was Rayman, wasn't it? I think yes. it basically was that. It was I think like it, a, Rayman or Renderman, they both exist. I think yeah. Rayman is, is the Pixar one, but don't quote me on that. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, the, the stuff that they were doing was, uh, it's fascinating watching Pixar's evolution from a sort of scientific because they used to you know the, the short films they made were to support papers yeah. they presented at SIGGRAPH yeah. Yeah. which was the yeah. big academic and industrial and computer graphics thing I think, yeah. um, and to you know try and sell their software and uh, 
you know, there's, I don't know all the details, but there was definitely something about um, Steve Jobs investing in Pixar because yep. Pixar bought a lot of Next computers. Yep. So Steve gets ousted from Apple in 87 or whenever it was. Um, and they basically kick him across the street and he's like, right, well, I'm going to make my own computer company. And he starts Next, which is the coolest computer company that never really – well, either it never went anywhere yeah. or it's ubiquitous he now because – as well, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Tim, Tim Berners-Lee had a Next station. Um, but, yeah, Pixar were buying – so many nexts that eventually jobs are like, who are these people? What are they working on? Yeah. And went in to see them and was like, do you want money? And I went, yes. And I think the and Disney deal was one of, probably one of the biggest deals he ever yeah. made at the time as well. So, that, so yeah, he was, yeah. he made his first billion when Disney bought his Pixar yeah. stock. Um, yeah. so which is, is how it, it played out. Uh, so yeah, he was, he was a billionaire long before Apple, kind of the, the return of Apple. And it took the, a few I years. I've been actually ever since like 90, yeah. Seven, and when he came back, it wasn't immediate success. <laughs> no, <laughs> it took, a little while. You know, the people now are like, oh yeah, he just came back, and then there was oh. the iPod and the iPhone. It's like, well, no, first there, there was, was the iMac. <laughs> there was about two years of wondering what they were going to do, and then there was the blue iMac with the hockey puck mouse, which was, uh, I mean, it was a fascinating device. That I had the I had the, the Bondi blue one, the next yeah. generation. Those were I love those machines. <laughs> but you know, the thing the thing everyone forgets about that now is that that was the first machine that didn't have a disk drive, didn't yep. have a floppy drive. And it had USB. Um, yeah. It had USB, and that was it. And uh, it had a, did it have a CD burner? I uh, not. Those ones, the latter ones. It has CD-ROM. Yeah. CD-ROM. So yeah, so you could install software, but if you wanted to get anything off it, you had to email it. Yeah. Um, and that was uh, you know. Hang on. No? Zip drives. Zip drives. <laughs> I, yeah. I am mega zip drives. I remember them well. Um, but no, you know, that was a pretty bold, uh, we have a, a computer with no floppy disk drive, yeah. but it has a modem. That's how you swap files now. I kept a floppy drive for a while, and now I can't remember the last time I had one. In fact, I have a, an external Apple Super Drive, which I've had for so long, I barely remember when I bought it, and I use it like once a year. So, usually when I find a cheap DVD... Yeah, for a movie that I can't get online. Yeah, like rip it, put the DVD back on the street. There we go. <laughs> yeah. What else do you use computers creatively for? I know that you had a, a concert last night, which I didn't end up staying for to the point where I thought maybe it wasn't happening. But oh, it um, was, we, we were on at quarter past eleven. But so what? Which is a thing that doesn't happen in the UK. <laughs> does, does that? I think it was well well late. Yeah. Um, does that involve any kind of technical wizardry with something behind the scenes, or is it? Uh, so that is. Uh, so the band is a, a project I started kind of putting together probably five six years ago now. Which is, uh, Sean Wildermuth once described it as the weird owl of software development. Mm -hmm. As in, it's songs where you know the tune, you know the music, but the lyrics have all been changed. And what I figured out quite early on is that it's very difficult to hear lyrics clearly, particularly if the sound quality isn't great, which unfortunately is often the case at conference parties, and particularly if English is your second or third language. So I was like, well, let's put subtitles up. And then I was like, well, why don't we just make videos? And so I taught myself how to do video post-production using Adobe After Effects. And um, so, you know, I have things like I have a macro where you give it a tempo and it'll give you a keyframe in the animation, like a keyframe marker for every downbeat. So you can drag elements you, in the timeline so that they appear on screen. Know, I'm not sure about After Effects, but Premiere has this feature built in right now. Yeah, it it's does. It's a new feature, yeah. Tempo Ooh. detection. It's called Remix. Ooh. Yeah, it's a new feature of Premiere. <laughs> Premiere's got some really good stuff. I was uh, making some promo videos in lockdown and uh, looking into to Premiere's automatic transcription yep. subtitling. It's fantastic. Really good software. It's uh, this, this 
recurring thing that I don't know if you get this on the internet. You mentioned some piece of software and there are still the people who are like, oh, you should just run Linux. And I'm like, well, go and talk to Adobe, you know? Yeah, it's got better. Um, I tried to Caden Live, which was okay. Um, I think there's rumor that DaVinci might come out yeah. on Linux, but and you have something like OBS, which is for production. Yeah. But actually runs exceptionally well yeah. on all platforms, but that's production. But it's one of the reasons I stick with a non-open operating system as well. Is yeah. Video is still... Eh. I mean, you know, I use, I use the whole suite. I'll use uh, After Effects, Premiere, Photoshop, Illustrator, all of them in the course of a given day. Yeah. Um, and there is nothing on, unfortunately, on Linux yet that comes close no, in terms of, you know, workflow, productivity, like, familiarity. Every now and then I dive in and hope there might be, but... It, yeah. And I don't know, I mean, it reflects the, the the largest user base, I think, of yeah. the platform is, is that they're not so interested in those tools. Yeah. They exist and they're fine. Yeah. But um, they have their issues. <laughs> and, uh, I, wish, I wish it wasn't true, but it is, well... Nothing is perfect. Yeah. But I'm very glad that the choices yep. all exist. So, any, anything else? Uh, music videos? Uh, so, music... I mean, I... Ray tracing. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm just... I, I'm a fun... You know, you have an idea in your head, and it could be anything. It could be a song, a music video, a image, piece of footage, crossword puzzle. Um, I have an idea at the moment. Uh, you ever heard of a thing called a, a Schrodinger puzzle? Which is a... It's a crossword puzzle where one of the clues is a news headline that hasn't happened yet. And both solutions are correct. Okay. The most famous one of these was from the the, the New Yorker in uh, no the New York Times in uh, when Clinton and Bob Dole were running for the presidency, and the day before the election results were known, they ran a, uh, a crossword where one of the clues was tomorrow's news headline something elected, and then the, the cross solution would be either Bob Dole elected or Clinton elected. But then, like, the first down clue of it was uh, Black Halloween Animal, which would either be bat or cat, because it would be the B for Bob or the C for Clinton. And I love that. I think my brain could cope, but it does sound quite cool. And, uh, it sounds like so, a mystery. <laughs> and, and so, you know, at the moment, I, I have this idea of uh, doing Schrodinger puzzles for the World Cup soccer fixtures. Because every time there's like, a, like you know, England and Germany are the same length. So if England faced Germany, you could make a puzzle where the solution to one of the clues is whoever ended up winning that match. And then you've got to come up with cross clues that fit. So I've got some, some tooling that does text analysis, comes up with all of those and figures out grids and stuff. And, you know, I love the fact that there is a that this sort of combination of, okay, this is an interesting idea, let's play around with it. And then a lot of the technology you find off the shelf will get you halfway there. Yeah. And then you want to extend it yeah. and you want to hack it yeah. and you want to go, well, I, I, I have software for making crosswords, but it can't make these crosswords. So now what do I need to do to, yeah. to kind of take the next step on that? Um, and, you know, I love how powerful modern computer systems are yeah. just for, yeah. you know, anything that um, anything that ends up on a screen. The one thing I've never got into is fabrication and 3D printing. So uh, Yeah, there's, uh, I haven't either, but I have a friend who's massively mm. into it. And it's also amazing how affordable it's yeah. become. Um, and how you can get consumer level stuff, especially something like, I don't know if you're familiar with something like Hero Forge for making yeah. gaming minis. And you could very easily create something possibly using ray tracing. I'm not sure. Um, and then you can have it printed. So you can actually, so uh, uh, there is a, there is a little mini printed Dylan floating around somewhere 
that uh, we, we made up in Hero Forge, and then I sent the blueprints to Guy Royce, who 3D printed it and painted it up and took it around a yeah. bunch of conferences, yeah. Yeah. which is kind of cool. But you can export the, I think it's .stx, it's yeah. a, the texture STL, mesh, yeah. STL, yeah. and you can pull STL yeah. into ray tracing software. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, who knows, maybe I need to write an STL parser in JavaScript so you can do 3D ray traced photo quality visualizations of Hero Forge. I mean, Hero Forge, you know, great example. It's a thing that runs in a browser. Yeah. You know, if you had to download software, no one would ever goof around other than very serious gamers. Um, Blender, but it's again another application you open, and half the time we don't really know what's supposed oh, to be. Oh, Blender is, is yeah. one of those apps that. Uh, it has to be said, after the last three years, I'm never going to again use the if I ever have the time, because I know it's not time that's stopping me. Because I had all the time when everything yeah. was closed and shut, and I still didn't sit down and learn to use Blender. No. So. <laughs> it's up there with my Unity and Unreal learning. But it's it's now switched into, if someone paid me to do this, well, you know. So on that, um, where can people find your creative projects and or pay you to do something probably far less interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm uh, DylanBeatty.net. D-Y-L-A-N-B-E-A-T-T-I-E. Uh, pretty much everything I do is linked from there. And uh, yeah, if you have a, a project in mind or you just want to look up the stuff that I do, give me a shout. I'm always interested in chatting about stuff. Um, I started, what, what's nice is I'm starting to get a fair number of inquiries from people who are like, we want something interesting for our company event that isn't just like another, you know, how to succeed in business type keynote. Um, And those I quite enjoy because they're an opportunity for me to really dive deep into an unfamiliar subject and put something together. Um, But, uh, yeah, if you you need someone who can turn JavaScript, stand-up comedy, ray tracing, video, parody, music, plugins with Crypto Crosswords with two solutions into something, then, you know, give me a call. I might be able to help. All right, that was my interviews from Build Stuff, but there were some events before that, actually. Back before that, I was first at HeapCon in Belgrade in Serbia, one of my favorite events. I did a talk on an introduction to interactive fiction for developers, kind of showing you how you can combine a creative writing desire with programming to create interactive fiction. I actually had quite a lot of resources I called on for this, but one I liked quite a lot is from inform-fiction.org, a short history of interactive fiction, I think written some time ago. don't exactly know when. Um, it's kind of hard to find. Um, it's somewhat hard to find. Maybe you'll find it on the website, uh, which I pulled on a little bit of information from and some other sources to, to get a lot of the history. And I suppose some of the various videos I've been making over the past year or so have informed... The new that I covered there, um, and uh, I will be making videos of some more of those in the future as I uncover them, actually. But, um, yeah, that was a good talk. It went quite well. I hadn't really done it before. I wasn't really sure what to expect. It went well. It timed perfectly, which made me very happy, and I'll be turning that into a YouTube video over the coming month or so, actually. So keep an eye out for that, too. Then I went to Stuttgart to TC World, which is TechCom World for tech communicators everywhere, but very largely also German ones. And I did a workshop on using Open Broadcast Studio, OBS, for tech writers. It also went well. I hit a few problems with uh, understanding the differences in what, in, in uh, people who use Windows. I need to do a little bit more digging into OBS under Windows, I will say. 
But again, I'll be turning that into a video or a series of videos probably um, over the coming months as well. So keep an eye out for that too. And then I got to build stuff. So, and we've already heard that. So jumping around time a little bit there. So what else from me? I've published a few things on Hacker Noon recently, including a roundup of Tech Radar, the uh, always interesting um, roundup of tech trends that um, that uh, ThoughtWorks keep an eye on. And before that, I did an article version of the video I did for Serenity OS that has been very popular, as has the video, actually. It's become quite a popular video quite quickly. On Twitch this week, I did a live stream looking at the code bases for Pocket Casts, iOS and Android. They just open sourced their clients and I had a look into them to see what I could do. And I was actually very pleasantly surprised by what I found. So go and have a look at that before it comes offline, gets taken offline because Twitch for free, they only stay there for seven days. So go and have a look very soon. I probably won't recreate that one to a YouTube video. It doesn't really make sense, but um, I enjoyed looking at it and I will possibly make some contributions to the iOS version. Anyway, a lot of people are asking about Catalyst enabling it so you could use it on a Mac and that would be quite cool actually. And then on YouTube, not so much because I've just been traveling a lot and busy and haven't had time to edit together the videos I wanted to put out yet. But you have the video version of Serenity OS up there already. And I am very nearly finished editing the video I have been making for virtualizing and emulating on macOS. But it's not quite done. Getting there. Getting there. As always, if you like what you heard, please jump over to christianschiller.com. Support me in any way you can. I've actually been getting some contributions through my Buy Me A Coffee link. So you can buy a few coffees now, which is great. And uh, I will see you next time. Thank you very much for joining me, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at christianschiller.com, where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.